In this episode of Info Product Mastery, we'll talk to Andrew Connell, Microsoft 365 and SharePoint framework expert on how he spent the past decade making a full-time living building info products for developers. This is Info Product Mastery, Episode 7. Welcome to Info Product Mastery, the podcast that helps developers, educators, and entrepreneurs launch and grow their online education businesses, whether you're just building a passive income stream or creating a full-time living. I'm your host, Adrian Rosebrock. And today, we've got a very good friend of mine on the show, Andrew Connell, but you can call him AC for short. Thank you for being here today, AC. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Oh, absolutely. We've known each other for almost 10 years at this point, right? It's been a long time. It really has. It's hard to believe that. Isn't it? I remember the time we was it, we sat down at a at a conference over lunch one time. I was like, "Oh my God, you're doing the same thing I'm doing." <laughs> and you know, those are the best relationships. Due to COVID, you know, we haven't been able to go to in person conferences and, and meet people. But you know, I, I encourage all listeners like if you get the chance to do it, forming an in person relationship is just so valuable. And I think AC, the, the relationship you and I, the fact that it's lasted for ten years, we talk at least once a month is just proof of that. Like you need to have someone to bounce ideas off of to, you know, give you sanity checks to keep you on the right track. It's just that that little bit of accountability makes a huge difference. I couldn't agree more. I mean, especially over the last three years, I've just in my work that I do, I usually in the past, I've gone to conferences multiple times, like probably once on average, once or twice a month where I was a presenter. And over the last three years, we, you know, with COVID, we couldn't get together. There's only one person locally where I live that I can talk about the same tech space, business space, whatever that challenges me in the same way. And a couple of weeks ago, I went to my first in-person conference and sat down and talked to people and was like, I didn't realize how much I was missing this. And it was almost like you wanted to cry. Like right. I had the feeling of like going, my God, I miss these people so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I totally, totally relate to that. And, you know, I hope, you know, in the future as Info Product Mastery grows, you know, maybe we're able to do online meetups to start, but hopefully you know, in-person meetups get together with people who are building and creating stuff. You know, I want to build this community for of developers who are developing these these info product businesses. I think developers have this notion that the only way you can make money online if, if you have that entrepreneur itch is to build a SaaS app or to build a mobile app. They don't really consider the education space. And I think that is a huge detriment because it's an easier way to get into the entrepreneur arena to throw your hat in the ring to build a product faster and get it online. And you know, I think, you know, especially among developers, like they don't understand marketing. And I don't mean that as in a bad thing. It's just that you just don't study that in school. Like you go to school to learn how to write code, to be a software engineer, to learn algorithms, learn how to code. You don't really learn the marketing side of that. I'm, I'm wondering in your in your case, AC, like, you know, where did you come from? Like, did you experience any of that? And, and how did you get started in this area? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a skill set that developers traditionally don't have, but that's not really exclusive to de- developers. That's you know, any space. When you go from, you think that, you know, I'm a carpenter and I'm going to start a business doing carpentry. It's like, well, no, you need to think like project management, estimating and stuff. You may have your, your tradecraft down really pat, but the business side of it is so tough. And for me, I, w- I would love to say that it was all like a very deliberate decision, but it was very much just an organic going through the process and kind of realizing like once you got here going, oh, this is actually kind of where I want to be. This is I kind of fell in my sweet spot. And I had the same problem. Like as a developer, I came into this and was like, I didn't realize that Maybe it was a lack of humility, but I I thought that it, this wouldn't be that hard to stand this up and found that 
the challenge of marketing, the challenge of business development and growing a business and being able to turn it into either a lifestyle or a full-time job, it was not a natural, it was not a natural thing. It was a new challenge. And it's honestly, it's the, it's the part of the challenge that's like, that's more fun. So it's like, I love diving into the tech and trying to figure out how stuff works and solving a business problem that way. But then the other side of the marketing bit is like all about psychology and, you know, customer behavior people and human behavior and how to tap into that and how to not exploit it, but how to make sure that you can do it in a way that's ethical and that you can be true. You can you know sleep well at night to know that you're not trying to be like some sleazy sales guy, right. I guess, in a sense. For me, that's the bigger challenge, but it's also the more fun because I feel like it's just there. there's no right way to do it. It's It's like making dinner, right? You can have all these different ingredients, all these different skill sets of how to do it, all these techniques. And everybody's going to come in and do it a different way, but it doesn't mean that any of those ways was right or wrong. It just means that these were different ways. Right. I think that's so true because no matter what your skill set is, whether you're a developer or like, you know, you play guitar in a band or you, you, uh, you know, train horses, you're going to gravitate to whatever your natural skill set is. And for developers, like, what are, what are we good at? We're good at writing code. We love writing code. Like we like putting on our noise canceling headphones and going into a quiet room and turning the lights off and locking the door and no one. No one can bother us. And we hack on that code and we feel great afterwards because we can see what we built and we can see the output of it. You know, the, the marketing, it's, it has such a longer life cycle. Like you're not running unit tests to figure out, is this marketing you know, going to work? Like there's no compile button where you get a, an answer back out in 30 seconds, right? Like it can take days, weeks, even months to figure out these marketing changes can actually grow your business. And that's what makes it, I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard for developers. but Again, it's also not in our natural wheelhouse. And that's the scary part is like when, you, when you're confronted with two paths and the easy path is I can write more code. Like if you're building an app, you'd be like, I can write more code. I can add more features. Like the customer requested this feature or that feature. And you just go off on that tangent without actually thinking like, man, what if I just stopped coding for a month and just taught myself how to market better? Like would that increase my sales? Would that allow me to grow my business further? Like, is, that, is that something you've experienced? Oh, it totally is. It totally is. In fact, it, as you were saying this, there's a meme that I saw the other day that I wish that I had seen this years ago to someone to say, look, this is like what this is what like, marketing is and marketing and testing is all about. So it was a picture of two developers and they're in the hallway and they have made these like cardboard swords and they're doing like a sword fight in the hallway. And the boss is leaning out the door and he's like going, hey, what are you guys doing? Get back to work. And they're like, it's compiling. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, OK, go back to having time. So it's, I feel the same way. Like, we can't do like right tests. We can't see like instant feedback. It's a, I've got to go like roll some things out, roll out a new change in a marketing can in an email campaign or try something new on the website to do like, you know, website personalization or something like that, or hyper personalization for, for customers and see what messaging works, AB testing ads, whatever. You really have to sit there and just like, let it marinate for two or three days, walk away and then come back and see how it is. That was one of the biggest skill sets or one of the biggest techniques that I have had a very hard time embracing and just being like, look, you just got to you start running a new Google ad campaign. Let it run for a week. Let it run for a week. Let it run for a month. Don't touch anything. Let it go. And it's like, oh, yeah, but if I tweak this one little thing, like as, as a developer, the developer side of me comes back going, no, no, no. You don't change lots of things at once and see what fit, what worked. You change one thing. Did it work? No. OK, go to the next one. Go to the next one. In one sense, your skill set and your technique as a developer applying those skills to being a marketer are is really useful because of that whole like don't change 15 things at once and see what's going to roll out don't do one the big bang rollout of things do things iteratively test 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 
that's a really useful skill set that we have as developers that is really plays well on the marketing side that I found at least. And then applying a lot of your technical stuff. And then <laughs> I guess the, the biggest thing that, I, that I'll fall into with it, not to, not to dive into a totally different topic where I know we'll talk about later, but it's like trying to apply too much of that to the marketing side and trying to get too technical. So mm -hmm. all these different tools you end up using, it's like, you can do this, you can do this. I'm like going, where's the IP API for this? How do I do this? How do I, how do I customize this? And they're like, you're not our target audience. I'm like, okay, that's right. That's right. This isn't <laughs> what I need to do. This isn't what I need to focus. This isn't going to make me another sale. Stop. Yeah. I, it reminds me of when I launched Practical Python and OpenCV, my first ebook that I wrote, I think I sold it for $19 initially. And I am creating like three total tiers for for the book. So the first one was just the ebook and the source code. The second tier was like ebook, the code, and like this downloadable virtual machine, which you could just import into, into VirtualBox or whatever your, your emulator of choice was. And you could just run this pre-configured environment. Because back then it was hard to configure your, your development environment for these machine learning and computer vision algorithms. And the third tier had like a printed, had everything else plus a printed physical edition of the book. And I was charging too little for it. And truthfully, it was this internal blocker that like, I didn't think it was worth it. Like, I, I was like, man, are people really going to pay me this much money for this, this content? Like, I, I wasn't really thinking about what I, I personally was worth or what the content was worth or what the value that someone could get from this was. And it's this classic, like almost imposter syndrome that you end up getting. But eventually, like you have to push it, you have to test yourself. I was like, you know what, I'm gonna effectively double my prices. And I took the bottom tier, which was about 19 bucks, and I raised it all the way up to 47. And I tell you, if you ever raise your prices, that is one of the scariest things that you ever, ever do. Because no matter what, I guarantee you, you're going to have a lull in sales immediately after you raise your prices. And it's going to be totally natural. It just to be like for a few days or a week or two, it'll be seasonal. Maybe there's not many people online. Like maybe you're not sending out as many emails or social media posts. And you're going to freak out inside. I mean, you are literally going to lose your shit. You're going to get really upset and be like, oh my God, I've just burned my business to the ground. Like no one is going to purchase my content anymore. I'm overpriced. I'm overpriced. Like I, I was freaking out about it. I talked to, talked to another friend. He was just like, just sign out, just sign out of your dashboard for sales. Don't look at the numbers for like three or four days, just walk away from it. And I did. And when I came back on that fourth or fifth day, I was starting to see sales come in at that higher price point. And within a, within a week, sales were back to normal. But since I had effectively doubled the pricing, you know, we were making more money. And it, it's just one of those things where like your developer mind, like you got to train it a little bit to apply what, like what fuzzy logic, you know, like there's going to be these things, these knobs and dials and you don't know what the outcome of them are going to be. And you're going to have to wait. And waiting is pretty hard for like super type A developers who are just impatient to begin with. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's like the way that I look at it is that when you like when you roll something out, and if you're doing like a if you're doing like a production release and you roll something out, and you watch your telemetry and you see like one error come in, you know, my natural behavior is just like, all right, go in, go find where that error is, go squash it, and go and go find it if it's a bug, and go through and roll out another update. The other side of me now is kind of like going, let's see if this happens again. Let's see how often this is happening here. Is this an edge case, or is this something symptomatic of like a bigger issue that's going on? Before I really dive in and try and fix this stuff or really try and, you know, is there a major thing? You have to just be patient with it. The, the one thing I'll add, or uh, two things about what you said about raising your prices, because I've been, I've been there, I've done that, and I had the same kind of apprehension. If So this doesn't apply if you're trying to price your product as, you know, the very first time. That's a totally different discussion and one that is already terrifying that I'm already going through. I'm going, getting ready to go through it again. 
But if you already have a product and you're going to double your pricing, first of all, make things a little bit easier on yourself by running a promo to go like, hey, prices are doubling on June the 1st. If you don't do it, you don't buy them by then, prices are going to be double. So you're going to hopefully have this nice little like bump right beforehand of all these people trying to get in at the lower price. That's going to condition the whole like, I didn't get any sales for 10 days. Like going, it's cool. You just made about $20,000 in the last in the last 10 days. So you're all good. The other thing I like to look at was your sales do go down. Sometimes they'll come back to the same level that they were at. But even if they don't come back all the way, you want to look at what your price point is. Like over the last month, we did, you know, let's say 15 units and each one was a, was $500. But now if you're doing like 10 units, but the average price is like $850 because you almost doubled your price there, you're actually coming out ahead. You have fewer sales, but you're coming out ahead. And you're going from like the Ford model to like the Ferrari model, where it's, mm-hmm. like it's more expensive and they're selling fewer units, but their margins are much better coming out of it. So I mean, it's just yeah, it's something that you do. You're right. You just got to retrain your mind on, on how you look at it. Just be like, you know, am I looking at this the right way? Are these metrics working for my business or are they just, am I, did I completely just, you know, screw something up there? So. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I think you're talking about pricing versus number of customers. You know, if you, you look at the Udemy model where like you could mm-hmm. list a course for $150, but your course doesn't sell for $150 on Udemy, they're going to discount it to 10 or 20. So mm-hmm. great. You're going to get a bunch of people purchasing at 10 or 20. And you might get a lot of people. And now you have to support all those people because those people are going to have like not only questions about the content, but technical questions like, hey, like I ran your code and got this error. Like, when are you going to update the code to be this library? You're incurring this massive support overhead by having a ton of customers. So there's a lot to be said by having a smaller number of customers, this core group that love you and back you no matter what. And honestly, give you the benefit of the doubt when you make a mistake, because mm-hmm. it's, it's a terrible feeling when you have just hundreds of people emailing you problems and like they're angry at you and they're, they're, you know, maybe they're requesting refunds. They're just hammering down your door and it feels overwhelming. But if you have Mm -hmm. a core group of customers that really love you and they're paying you those higher prices, I would choose that any day, hands down. I I agree with everything you just said. The one other thing that I think that's really helpful is that when you're in that space and you have people who are passionate and give you that really, that give you the feedback that they, they really like your content. They really like your delivery. They're very happy with you as a vendor that they decided to pay. You inevitably will get that one person who's like, this stuff sucks. Mm-hmm. You're going to look at it and just going like, all right, you want your money back? Because yeah. I mean, I got enough people over here that are telling me the other thing and you're the one that's kind of stands out from the whole crowd. Then it doesn't make like there's a there's a podcast and uh, a community that you and I are, are big fans of. And they traditionally we've been it's where we originally met and they they focus a lot on like one kind of business but over the years it kind of sees its transition to another style of business i'm still in the in the other style i haven't transitioned to the other to the the one that they transitioned to it's just not it's just not what i want to what i want to focus on right now and i've asked them a couple of times like you know yeah hey you know this is the way i'm not coming to the conference this year this are you ever going to do anything about this kind of stuff here i get that you know you're going in this direction but I'm sure that they're looking at it too, like going, look, he's the only one that's, that's giving us this feedback, or he's one of like 10 people that are giving us this feedback. Yet we've got these thousands of other people over here or a thousand of people who love the direction we're going in. So statistically, his feedback isn't really relevant. I get it. Everyone wants to do their own thing, but you have to put yourself in like that person's shoes. So I do when I get that negative feedback, when like I have assessment questions in my, in my exam and I get a couple of these are great. These questions are great. And that one person's like, these things are absolutely worthless. Like going, hey, don't. Don't agree with that, but you're the only one that's told me that in about three years. So, okay, maybe you maybe they are worthless to you, but I'm not, this doesn't mean I need to change what I'm doing. Oh yeah, I think 
I think in the future, you and I should do an entire episode on like toxic customers. And we could tell stories <laughs> about some of the emails and blog post comments and YouTube comments we've got. And then, and then like give people practical advice on actually how to deal with those situations. Cause there's a, a, a lot of people are afraid to fire their clients or their customers. A lot of business owners are. And I think that's a shame because if you identify someone who is toxic and knocking down your door and like telling you and your team the, all these horrible things, get rid of them. Like just, just, Give them their money back and say, we're not a good fit for each other. Here's some other resources you should, you should check out, but we can no longer do business and support you. Good luck. And just leave it at that. Like You don't need to be mean back in return. Just be cordial. Give them their money back and walk away. The funny thing is, I couldn't agree more because it's, it's not worth the, if your price point is $1,000 for your course or $500 for your course or whatever info product you're doing. If they cut, if you cut bait on them like halfway through it, and you're like, "Look, I'll, just take your money back. This isn't this isn't worth my time. This I, it's worth me to give you five hundred dollars to not have to have this mental baggage on my in my head right now." That's one side, but a lot of times, like I was actually using a real customer that gave me that feedback. Your questions are absolutely worthless, and I turn around, I'm like, "Going cool. You think that? I mean, you're within the fourteen day window. Let me know. I'll trigger the refund policy. Credit card take like three five days. You'll get your money back. I'll revoke your access. No problem." His response: No, 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 no. I don't want my refund. I'm like, wait a minute. I just, or, okay, so cool. And now he's giving me like constructive criticism that's actually useful stuff. But I'm like, wait, I tried to give you money to go away and you're not even going away now, but you're not like continuing the same thing. You're actually changed the way you're phrasing stuff. And you're actually being one of my better customers now. I'm like, this is, this wasn't supposed to happen like this. I like that it happened like this, but I wouldn't expect it. So yeah, I think it's funny. I think in general, it's just good to reply to customer emails because I think a lot of people have been burned in the past, whether they purchased you know, someone's random course they found on Google or like they found a course on YouTube and purchased it or went through Udemy. You know, they'll send in an email to the course creator, ask a question, and then the email just goes into a black hole and no mm -hmm. one ever sees it and they're feeling frustrated and annoyed and maybe the refund process is cumbersome and you know, not very transparent, so they don't know what to do. And like I... I feel for those people because there certainly are companies like that online, without a doubt. So when you actually reply to a customer and do so in a timely fashion, most of the time it'll completely change their attitude towards you. And like you could actually, instead of having an enemy, you get this automatic ally because they're like, wow, like this person actually cares. They're not wanna, they're not selling like diet pills off of this sales page or whatever. They're they're like selling real stuff and they're here to help me. I could not agree more with that. I could not agree more with that. So let's let's shift a little bit, you know, and and talk about talk about you a little bit more. Like you ran an in-person education business before doing what you're doing now. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. I started, I co-founded a company with a partner back in 2009. And our model was the traditional, we have a five-day course, book your flight, book a hotel. We're gonna be at this facility or in this hotel ballroom. Bring your ticket and we'll teach you for four or five days. You do a lecture for an hour or two hours, then there's a hands-on lab where you're sitting there and helping them out. And it was just, that's that was our business. We had a handful of contractors that would teach for us. It was all our content that we wrote, that we that we taught. And yeah, I mean, it was a small business, three or four employees and about five to 10, depending on the year, contract instructors that we did. And that's not only did I run it, but I was also one of the the most frequent like instructors that was teaching the content. My partner and I, we were we were also teachers but we split our time between like teaching and running the business. Okay. So, I mean, in-person trainings, traditionally, you're going to be able to charge a pretty penny for actual oh, yeah. in-person live training, especially on, on technical content. But it also sounds yeah. like you had a pretty large team size. So you probably had like a, a good overhead you know, to worry mm -hmm. about. Like what, 
What were the profit margins like? And you know, would you do that again? So would I do it again? No, no. I'll go to that one first. But I think that the reason for that, I mean, there's a couple of reasons why I would never do it again. Part of them are personal, part of them are, are business-wise. But the profit margins were actually, were, were pretty good because we were all like, we were mostly uh, contractor-based. Uh, we had very little overhead behind us. So the, our only staff was we had a marketing person, we had a uh, salesperson. At some point we had like two salespeople, but that was like low base, high commission type stuff. Those were, those were easy to, to incur that cost. And then we had a back office person. And I mean, part of it, we were able to skimp on some expenses because the back office person was my wife. She really didn't get paid, but we just had some ways to kind of, we just made things that kind of was, it was to where we made it fair between myself and my business partner. So the expenses weren't really all that bad. Our margin was probably close to about 45 or 50%. That's still good. Oh, it was really good over the course of four years. So, I mean, that the, the business side, I mean, you, those were some of my more profitable years was those four years. Those four years, though, they took a lot off my life. Um, and I found myself to be a lot more wound tight and frustrated. I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot, learned a lot about myself, but I learned a lot about what I wanted and what really drove me during that time. So before that, I was, I was teaching as like a contract instructor. And then my business partner, he had an existing training business that was really just him and like one or two like loose affiliations with other like contract trainers. He brought me on board to be more of the business person for the company. And he already had a lot of the, he had the customer base. And then we started creating, the two of us started creating a whole bunch of net new content. Our stuff had a very like short shelf lifespan of like one to or two to three years. So once okay. we got past that three years, a new release would come out. And then our old stuff was basically useless okay. um, because we stopped teaching it. But I did it. For, I did it for a couple of years, and then that the last year for like the last. So I did it for four years, and about the last eighteen months of it, I was struggling. I didn't know why I was struggling, but I was really struggling just personally, drive all of that. And I'll never forget. It. I was teaching a course in the summer, of Boston, two thousand and twelve. Finished teaching a course. I went back to my hotel was like, I'm going to sit down for a minute before I go out and go grab something to eat. And I probably told you the story. I started channel surfing. And the next thing I know, I had been channel surfing for two and a half hours, never staying on one channel for more than 20 seconds, just going all the way through the channels and coming back through. And I just realized like, and that was like on a Tuesday night, I had three more days to go. And I was like, you know what? Number one, I can't keep teaching the same thing over and over and over, which I was doing. I was teaching the same thing 20 times a year. You show up on a Sunday night, you basically just flip the switch and then you start going for five days and then it turns off on Friday and you go home, but you're just brain dead. And then the other part was, is that I, I just was like, I'm sick of the travel. My kids are getting to be a certain age. I don't want to do this anymore. And I couldn't figure out how to fix it. And I, I'll, I'll never forget, man. I came back at the end of 2012 and just went to my partner and I was like, dude, I'm out. And I know we can't sell this business. I know there's not like an asset to sell because everybody's a contract trainer and all the content has a shelf life of two or three years. So let's take the accounts receivable, subtract the accounts payable. Let's take the, the, ba the balance and the cash. Let's cut it in half and I get a little bit of, of a payout over the next, I'll take my half of the big payout, but then you'll also continue to pay me for the next, I think it was a year or two years of diminished royalties from the, the business that we built up that you know, I just eventually just kind of divested my interest over to him. So I felt there was no big payday, but it was nice to be able to get something for what you for what you built up. And plus, you had a sense of closure. You know, you're yes. you able to end it on good terms, walk away with a little bit of money, be like, OK, like I ended that correctly. There's no hurt feelings here. 
Yeah, yeah, it, very much so. And it, it was it was funny because it, he he and I haven't ever had a chance to really sit down since we did this a long time ago. But I don't think he fully thought that I was going to that I was really trying to get out. I think he was trying. He thought that I was trying to stand up an, a competitive business. So like he's like, I want you to sign a, a non compete that says you won't reach out to the exact same customers that you won't go do another training business in this in the space that we teach the content on and everything for the next one to two years. I'm like, cool, I'll sign it. He goes, you want your lawyer to look at it? I'm like, I mean, I'm gonna have a lawyer look at it to make sure it's it's just around those terms. But yeah, I got no problem signing. I, I really have no plan to do this. He's like, well, what's your plan? I'm like, I really have no plan. I have to get out of this to be able to figure out what's next. Right. So it's like, it, it's nothing against you. It's like, I'm just not, this is sending me down the wrong path and I'm becoming a more negative person. And before I get to that point, I got to make a change. Absolutely. It sounds like you're really entering those there's really hard phases of burnout, you know, when you just can't focus, you're exhausted. And you know, I think developers as, as a whole, I think we, sh- we shy to the side of introverts, you know, mm. which means like being around other people, we like it, but it's also draining. It drains our batteries. And the only way we can recharge is to have some time to ourselves. And most people don't know this, but I'm actually like extremely introverted. I can put on the extroversion to do in-person talks and do, and do podcasts, but it drains my battery. And there's a time where like, I just have to go alone by myself for a few hours, read a book or like, write some code, just be be alone. And it, it sounds like with you, like, you were reaching those points of burnout, man, like, I gotta, I gotta get a change. And then it kind of sounds like you entered like the the online space. Like, how did how did that happen? Like, what inside of you was like, man, I should start doing education online? You know, it didn't come, it didn't come to me as a, as a very obvious path. When I left out of the business, that was February of 2013. And I honestly was like, what are you going to do next? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. And so for a couple of years, the business I'm doing now, I didn't start it until September 2017, but it, the, the, the wheels didn't go get in motion until late 2016. So there was about three years where I was just kind of bouncing around. Like, I'll do this contract job. I'll do this contract job. Tried to build a SaaS. Just, a, just doing a couple different things. And I think a lot of it for me was that I had no idea the thing that's so exciting about what you're working on now to me is that there was no community for this phrase of like info product. I had no idea that was a thing. I had no idea that's, that I was actually doing that, but I was doing it as a, I was actually doing that kind of business. I didn't realize that it actually had a name to it. So I, I tried a bunch of different things. During those three years, I was doing courses where I would build a course and I would sell it through somebody else. So some people okay. may be familiar with a company called Pluralsight. I was one of the, not one of the original authors, but before Pluralsight turned into a publicly traded company that started taking external VC funding and a billion dollar, all that stuff. I was, I was one of like, I'd say one of the first, like probably 50, 7,500 instructors um, that were publishing content there. And I had like 20 some courses there. And I, I love the model of like, build it once, publish it. I don't have to repeat what I'm saying over and over and over. And I have the ability for someone to just go like, go look, they ask you a question, like going, go watch my course. I've already explained it. Back in 2003, I started a blog and I, every time I used it personally, I use it selfishly as my own like journal to where my tech journals, I learned something, I'd write about it here. So someone's like, how'd you do that? I'm like, I wrote about it. Go, I don't want to repeat myself. Go over there. I did it. I did it once. My thoughts are all planned out, all that kind of stuff scoped out and everything. And that's what I really liked about the video based training because it felt very much like a transition from going from the blog post, from like the static text type stuff, I guess, to being a static video to where it, you could show more stuff and you could actually see how things were going, how things were working out, how, what you were trying to explain. 
So I, I just started transition over to that side. And really, like in the space that I'm in now, I think, I think this is what you were asking, but like, as I did the plural, I was doing the plural site piece to it. I found I was getting frustrated with working through somebody else, nothing against plural site or Udemy or anything, but I was getting frustrated working through somebody else because I couldn't talk to the customer. I couldn't get their feedback. I couldn't find, do any kind of market validation on like, if I, if I covered this topic, is this subtopic I covered in this course? Is that really interesting to you? Could I build another course off that same thing? And I, I couldn't get any of those kind of metrics. And as much as I was asking for that stuff from who I was working with, they're like, no, 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 that's not what you do. You just give us the content. And I'm like, you know, you start to kind of do the business side of it and everything. And I don't look at it as like that business is wrong or this business is right. It's more that, okay, you're only giving me like a 20% royalty on the work that I'm doing here. The 80% that I'm effectively paying you is the, the channel, the distribution, the development of the market, the selling, the fulfillment, all that stuff. And I'm looking at like going, I don't think you're selling to the right market. I don't, my content, you're not reaching my audience. I go speak at a conference and nobody has a clue when I say, oh yeah, I have a course on this on Pluralsight. And they're like, what? I'm like, I'm doing the marketing. Why, why am I doing the marketing? I'm paying you to do it. And so that's where it finally was like, it actually came from a mastermind where this is before you, I think this is around the time you and I met or right before the time you and I met, right around that time. And I was, my guys in my mastermind, I was playing with the SaaS and they're like, you're an educator. Why are you building a SaaS for doing whatever? That's not important, but why are you building a SaaS when you've shown how good you are at doing this stuff with like Pluralsight? Why don't you just do that for yourself? I needed the somebody outside of me to just effectively like do the whole like, you know, airplane thing of like slapping you across the face, like get a hold of yourself, man. <laughs> look at what you look in the mirror. Look at what you're good at. Focus on that. That's why you should be making your money. And I was like, oh, maybe so. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Like, I, I totally get it though. I mean, it sounds like you were in that situation where we were just like we were discussing at the beginning of this episode. You're like, I'm a developer. I'm a developer. I know how to write code. So I'm going to be a contract job person and write code for a living. Or you know, you got a little farther in the entrepreneur journey and you're like, I'm going to build a SaaS app. I'm going to start charging monthly recurring revenue for this service that I'm building. But right there in front of you the entire time was, you know, you're, you're an educator. You're, you're creating content. You're publishing it yourself. You're producing it yourself. You're, people are coming to you with questions, which yeah. I, think, I think transitions perfectly in, into the next, next part, which is you are really well known in the, in the Microsoft space. Like you are like the most like well-known Microsoft developer I have ever met. And anytime I start talking about like 365 and like the SharePoint framework, they're like, oh yeah, like I, I totally know Andrew Connell. Like I've, I've used his content. I've watched his videos. So tell us about like this, this journey because you've really carved yourself a nice little niche in the, the Microsoft ecosystem. The majority of the story is just right place, right time, fell into it, picked the right six numbers for the lotto ticket. The other side of it was that there was one deliberate decision that I made. The abbreviated version of this, because it really starts back in 2003, but we don't want to go back that far. So in, in 2003, I joined a company called Fidelity Information Services, FIS, which is a, they were part of a company called Fidelity National Financial, which is the, the, in the United States, they're the leading mortgage processing company in the country. So much so our data center next door to my building was like, if a, if a car bomb went off or a truck bomb went off, there were, there were contingency plans to shut down the New York Stock Exchange that day because it would be such an impact on the, on the economy. So that's not really important though. So it's just a cool story. What I did, I joined this company because at the place where I was currently working, I, I was doing .NET on the side, but they're like, 
you don't have any practical experience with .NET, so we can't put you on a .NET project until you have some practical experience on it. I'm like, wait a minute. So I'm stuck on a chicken and egg thing. I'm never going to get out of here. I found another company, FIS, who was transitioning from Lotus Notes over to .NET and SharePoint. And I was like, well, I want to do .NET. And I went over to them and I was like, I can teach .NET. And they're like, cool. So you say you can do it? I'm like, yes, I can totally do it. And I just basically snowed them over and told them that I knew what I was doing, even though I had not a single practical project under my belt. But I knew more than their developers knew because they were all like Lotus Notes developers. So I got into that whole side of it. They got SharePoint as an enterprise agreement. It's kind of funny. They're like, we're going to do an evaluation of all these different portal products we can have for our company. They looked at five of them. SharePoint was number four on their list or number three on their list. The CEO is like, hey, we just signed an enterprise, enterprise agreement with Microsoft. And like, oh, apparently it's number one. So that's the <laughs> one we're going to be using. As I started to play with it, as I started to kind of like find that there were lots of things to learn with it and nobody else was figuring it out at my company, most of the people that were on my team were all the, I don't want to change, I don't want to change type people. I'm the kind of person that's like, I want to learn, I want to learn. And so management just liked the fact that, I think management just, they, they liked the fact that I stood out to the, man, the management as he's figuring out the stuff that we are planning on using. And he's trying to help the other people around him kind of come up to speed. And so over the years, there was another product that we merged it with. It was a content management system, like a web-based CMS. SharePoint was a portal solution. And then long story much shorter is Microsoft took those two products. They merged them into one. SharePoint continued, but they had this new kind of skew in SharePoint called WCM, Web Content Management. And everybody that was in the world that was currently doing SharePoint collaboration stuff, they were all in the collaboration many-to-many -many type audience where I was in the publishing space with SharePoint, where it was a one to many. So write a web page, use that to kind of like a WordPress style that didn't, we didn't really have in that in the same space at the time, because nobody else was doing it. I've made a name for myself as being the WCM guy for SharePoint, myself and like three other people worldwide. And everyone just kind of saw I was like, you're the WCM guy. Microsoft took notice of it. I got to be friends with the guy who was running that team at Microsoft. I ended up writing a book about it and published the book. And I just had this following of like, you're the WCM guy. Where that really helped me was that people started, I wrote a lot of stuff on blog posts. I spoke at conferences about the topic. I answered a lot of questions in our old, those old school Usenet style use group, news groups and online forums. And I just generated a following over time of people who saw me as like a subject matter expert in that space. That's all like the right place, right time kind of things. Microsoft made some changes. I was in the right place. I did it. And this thing I kind of turned around going, nobody else is doing this. This is kind of my interest space. Like, and Microsoft's marketing this. And then I got lucky because the licensing for this thing was like over $100,000 if you wanted to use it for a production style website. So building a course that was $3,000 a week to sit in my course in, that was like a drop in the bucket when it came to budgets of new projects. So I was like, well, this is great, man. I'm living, the this is like the high lifetime. But changed is that in 2013, when I left that training business I talked about earlier, I was very much like, not only do I want to change what I'm doing, I really just want to change everything up. I'm like, I'm done with doing Microsoft stuff. I'm done with doing SharePoint. I'm sick of this. And I went back to my roots, which were originally like client-side development, doing way back, we called it DHTML and Ajax at the time. Now we call them web apps. And I switched over and focused a lot more on doing things with like Node and doing things with Angular, React didn't exist at the time. I got to be good friends with people over at Google. And it was funny because this is like the shortest version of like my history is that how did I get in the space that I'm in right now 
is Microsoft had me come back to them and say, we're doing an internal conference. We'd like for you to show people how to build single page apps using Angular on SharePoint. And I'm like, well, I know how to build SharePoint projects. I know how to do SharePoint apps. I know how to do Angular. So let me kind of marry the two topics. And I presented this session at their internal conference that was called Tech Ready at the time to a bunch of people, a bunch of Microsoft developers that work for Microsoft. While I was there, Microsoft came back and they're like, we want to take you to lunch. We want to show you what we're thinking about where we're going. And they showed, us, showed me this thing called the SharePoint framework, which was basically saying, we're going to take SharePoint development, take it off server side, move it all client side. It's going to be React-based, but all client side. And they're not going to use Visual Studio. Developers aren't going to use Visual Studio. You're going to use the more not .NET either. They're going to use Node.js and all the, open, the modern web tools and everything. And I looked at it. This was three years after I left the comp- after I left the my my company, and after I said, you know, bye bye Microsoft, I'm done. I saw this and I was like, I've got an audience of SharePoint developers that I that people still look to me for this stuff. Like, and I'm still in this whole space of what am I going to do with my life? This was probably 2015, 2016. And the other side of me was like, these developers that you're going to tell they have to start building things this new way to them as new way. It's like. This is like, if you've seen the movie Hunt for October, this is a crazy Ivan to these people. They're not gonna have a clue what's going on with this stuff. This is totally different. But this is what I've been doing for the last couple of years. So I know both of these stories. Wait a minute. I like doing educational products. I'm like the, I'm in a perfect spot to take an old market that I have of tens of thousands of people, get them on an email list, and then turn around and build a SharePoint framework course that I sell to these people before anybody else comes out there and does it. And so that's what the company was founded on. That's what was founded on was professional development, web development education for SharePoint developers. I've expanded to be Microsoft 365 and Azure as well. But it was like, I've got this old market. I can build a new product and sell that old market because I know the problems they have. When Microsoft was telling me like, here's how we're going to go through and teach everybody how to do it. And I'm like, oh my God, you're totally going to screw this up. I'm like, sweet, you guys go ahead and do that. And I'll give you, and they're like, we want your input. And I'm like, I'll give you my input. And like, yeah, 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 we think you're wrong. We're going to go this way. I'm like, well, I think I'm right. So I'm going to go build a course that shows this. And thankfully it actually paid off. So that's, that's my, great. that's my history in a kind of a nutshell where <laughs> it's, I was right time, right place for a lot of stuff. But when they showed me where they were going with the product or developers, that's when I looked at it, made a deliberate decision. And that's where my mastermind that I was in was kind of like this, the whole like airplane slap in the face, like, Dude, what are you doing? You're in a unique position to be able to deal with this. I'm like, yeah, I think I am. Or I'm at least in a unique enough position to give this a shot. I'm crazy to let this to let this opportunity pass me by. I think that's a really good point. Like the, the right place, right time situation is is incredibly important. But here's what I'll say. Right place, right time is not lightning in a bottle. It's not something that just happens every so often. If you look at you know your story. And you look at my story, we are in two completely different fields. You know, you were in the, the Microsoft Azure space, you, you know, you do 365 framework. You know, I'm in the computer vision with Python space, you know, did a lot of did a lot of work there. Those couldn't be, you know, farther, farther apart. And then and you like start thinking, like, man, how many programming languages are there? How many, and then how many libraries are there per programming language that have over a thousand users? And like it starts to blow your mind and you start to realize that right place, right time can be important, say, if you're going to build like a seven-figure company, you know, where you could even retire off of it. Now, if you wanted to build like a company to replace your 
as like a side hustle for a little passive income or like as a full-time living to replace your current job, right place, right time can have a different meaning to you because yeah. you you don't have to hit these lightning in a bottle situations like like I was with with the computer vision space and when the deep learning resurgence and, and neural network resurgence took place. All you have to do is just pay attention and keep an open mind. Get on Reddit forums, get on Hacker News forums, get on LinkedIn groups that where you have some sort of knowledge already and then start scrolling through like, what are the libraries that people are talking about the most? And then start saying, what are people's gripes with those libraries? What problems are they having? What projects are trying to build? What, what are the blockers? And then you can start educating yourself on that. And over time, you become like the go-to expert in that topic, which is effectively like exactly what, what you did. Like you didn't have a ton of experience in the .NET framework. But over time, you became the guy that like people would go to. And that's all because you publicly blogged and created videos about the issues you were having so that other people can learn from them. Is mm-hmm. that right? It really is. And I think there was, there's one more aspect to this that I'll throw in there. I mean, I, I agree with you about the, the lightning in a bottle thing. And I said, you know, right place, right time and all that. I'm also a very firm believer of, I, I wish I could find out where I heard this phrase, but I remember hearing it years ago. I have no idea who to attribute it to. So this is not original. But I, I believe so strongly in this. Someone said that opportunities are just like city buses. There's always another one coming. I couldn't agree with that more. There's, you don't, when you look at an opportunity, it's like, going, I've got a great opportunity for you. And now it's like, oh my God, I got to jump on this before it goes away. I'm like going, it's okay. Because it may be a great opportunity. You can let it go, but there'll be another one that you can look at. And you don't know when it's going to come. You may, get a, you may get this rain it pours kind of a thing. And maybe, you know, maybe a year before you find another one of these things. But at some point, something's going to come across your desk. And it's the, like the way I coach people with this is like, just you got to put yourself in a mindset not to go find something, but to be listening and watching and know what you're looking for. And when it comes across your desk, like going, okay, that's one that I could actually, I could jump on board with. If you do any type of like trading online, the first piece of advice you're going you're gonna to hear is let the markets come to you. Don't, if you have to study the candlestick charts and study the patterns to try and find where the market is going. Like you're wrong. Like just hold off. Don't enter that trade. You know, wait. Set your parameters of like what uh, what good opportunity looks like to you, and then let that come to you. And the same thing can be done. You know, when you're developing a business, you don't have to chase these shiny objects. You could set your own parameters of like of like what programming language you're an expert in, or like what libraries you're specifically interested in. And just kind of just watch. Be patient. Wait for those opportunities to come. Don't force it. That's that's how you burn yourself out. And that's how you honestly don't build a successful company. Yeah. And, I, and just to throw one, I'll, I completely agree with that. And I throw one more nugget out there. And I know it's a whole bunch of cliches, but this does, this one makes a lot of sense to me is that when you're a developer and the marketing side is a little bit harder to come to because you don't have, that's not your background of selling stuff, right? You're, you're it's solving problems, but it's not selling a product. When you go to build your first info product, whatever it is, ebook, course, video, whatever. You're going to be a YouTube creator and try to make your money off, off YouTube ads. That's to- all that stuff that, that falls in this category. But when you think about it, going along what you just said, think about like what is the, the path of least resistance to have some success? So sure, you could go through and you could build a product that tries and you try and convince everybody why they need it. But then if the other side, if you kind of look at what, like what you were saying a second ago, look at the Reddit forums, look on Quora, look on you know the, the specific product you're focused on. Get yourself into those communities and watch what they're talking about. Look at where their pain points are and then try and solve their pain point. It's easier to sell an aspirin because people are asking for help and how to fix something 
than it is to sell a vitamin and trying to convince people why you need to take more of this. It's always easier to sell an aspirin. And that's what I did with my business was I built something that they didn't know they were going to have this problem, but I knew the problems that they were going to run into. I anticipate the problems they're going to run into. And I built an aspirin for those problems that they were going to have instead of trying to convince them of, here's all the stuff you need to do. And the, the parts of my course that I would add to the course that were like vitamins, and I try and market those things, those weren't anywhere near as successful as the, here's the problem I'm trying to solve when I use that kind of content marketing to focus on, on the pain points. It just sells itself. You don't have to pay for ads. You just look at what people are asking for. Google finds that stuff. You can do your own research on like what the questions people are asking. So much easier to sell aspirin than it is to sell vitamins. Man, what, a, what an excellent point to end it on. So run up on time here. If people want to chat or connect with you, what's the best place to reach you at? Best place to find me, I guess, uh, reach out is on Twitter. So I'm just at Andrew Connell, or you can find us on our, my business, which is at Boitanos. Either one of those, I mean, they're in, my, in the profiles for both of those, there's links to Spiderweb out from there. So that's where I would go for both of those. And then the same, the websites are the same for, for those things. AndrewConnell.com, Boitanos.io to find me and to, to connect with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, AC. Wonderful having you on the show. And I'm sure we'll have you back more to discuss more about information products. Thanks for having me, man. It was a lot of fun. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at questions at infoproductmastery.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review in whatever podcatcher you use, whether it's iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitchers. Not only do these reviews motivate me to create new episodes, but they also help other developers, educators, entrepreneurs find the show. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.